morning's sermon is Isaiah chapter 64, the first part of verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you longing for? Children, perhaps you're thinking of the festive season, Christmas season, and you're looking forward to gift exchanges this month in your family. Or perhaps your birthday's coming up and you're really looking forward to that. There are all kinds of things we can be looking for with great expectation, waiting for. You know, Our deepest longings, the things we most need, are often exposed and brought into sharp focus when God visits suffering upon us. When we're struggling with cancer or some other painful disease, when we've had an accident, things have gone very wrong, then suddenly the most important things come into focus. To be alive. To be with those whom you love. And in the deepest sense, to know God. To be known by him. To live in him. To experience his nearness. When you strip everything away. And that's the deepest longing of the heart of every Christian. That's actually the biblical description of a Christian. Those who long for his appearing. Now the people of God in the time of which Isaiah 64 is referring, to which Isaiah 64 is referring, is experiencing great suffering. And in their suffering, everything else seems petty and unimportant compared to the longing of their souls that God would come and make things right. Now, Isaiah began his ministry in around the year 739 before Christ, some 200 years before the events to which our chapter refer. 200 years before the return from exile. So 200 years before the exile, or 150 or so years before the exile, he prophesied of the exile, and then he already prophesies of the return from exile. Two centuries before it happens. And we sang those glorious words from Isaiah 40 at the beginning of the service. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. That's the second part of the book of Isaiah, which speaks about the restoration the future restoration. And here in in chapter 64 and chapter 63, what is in view are those first years after the people of God come back from exile. And in those early years, there is a remnant returning to a ruined land. There's no return to normal. Everything's different. Everything's broken. Everything's changed. And in that anguish, 
the people of God cry out to him. And, and we saw that at the beginning of our reading, chapter 63, verse 15. And I'll be jumping around in the reading as I go along. So if you have your Bible open, that will help you. In 63, verse 15, they cry out, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. They say, God, look what's happened here. Look at verse 18, the end of verse 18. Our adversaries, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. And then look in chapter 64, verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, the holy city, the royal city, has become a desolation. And our holy and beautiful house, the temple where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. That's what they're coming back to. And after this great judgment and affliction and destruction, God's people don't know where to start. How do we fix things? They've suffered because of their enemies. And the prophet recognizes that this has been the discipline of God. Look at uh, chapter 64, verse 5. At the end of it, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? People of God recognize that the problems at root stem from their disobedience, their sin. And then follow those well-known words of confession. In verse 6 of chapter 64, the confession that, that we, nothing we can do can make things right when it comes to justifying ourselves. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And so there are the people of God. They're back in the promised land. They're surrounded by destruction. And they're wondering where to start. Now note that they don't come to God with a victim mentality. That's what we're taught by a lot of modern psychology. We're taught that we're the victims. That we've been hurt. That the world owes us something. They don't come to God with a, a, a victim attitude of why has this happened to us, Lord? Why? It's not fair. But they come in confession. Look at verse 7 of chapter 64. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. That's the problem. And so the psalmist, also the, 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 the prophet recognizes that this is the result of God's righteous judgment upon sin. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And then look at chapter 63, verse 7, to flip back there. Or verse 17, rather. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? You see, when, when, when God's people neglect his ordinances, when we despise the proclamation of God's word and the sanctity of the sacraments, then God can for a time give us over to the horrible consequences of this and, and remove from us even a sense of his favor. 
give us over to our foolishness. And the result of that we see in chapter 63, verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. We have become, says the prophet, a worldly church for all intents and purposes, indistinguishable from the unbelievers. So the prophet, on behalf of the people, confesses to God, God, we've got a lot of problems, a lot of troubles to deal with, but the, the biggest problem is in us. It's in our hearts. And so they're driven to confession, to humble confession. In the last one and a half to two years, Has God led us to examine our hearts? Have we been driven to confess our worldliness? And have we come to see more clearly our need to seek after God? This is where God's people are at in this chapter. They're in a place of grief and everything has fallen apart and we have fallen apart, and we don't know how to begin to set things right, and we cannot set things right. And from that place comes that cry of our text, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would intervene, because you've done it before. And you see that in the verses following our text. There's a reference to what happens when God intervenes in this world. It's like when fire bursts into a roaring inferno, consuming the brushwood. When fire makes the waters boil so that they steam up. When the mountains quake and shake at the coming of the Lord. We sang about that in Psalm 18. And look at verse 3 of chapter 64. When you did awesome things that we did not look for. You've done it before, says the prophet God. You've done it before. You've come with unexpected and glorious and powerful and miraculous acts of salvation, surprising acts of salvation, seemingly impossible acts of salvation. You've done it before, God. So do it again that the nations might tremble at your presence. Here we are, return to the promised land. Everything's broken, everything's burned. Everything's in ruins. And the people around us are sneering. We're weak and we're insignificant and we're incapable and we're despicable and despised by those who hate you. But this is who you are. You are our only hope. Look at verse 4 of chapter 64. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You are the only one. You are the only God. You're unique as a saving God and your salvation is unique. There is no other. And so God... You're the only one to whom we can appeal that you would come, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
That's the prayer of God's people. And we know the answer. He did come down. And he came as he always does in a marvelous and unexpected way. He didn't come with legions of angels. He didn't come with a great army and and have a great battle to restore the throne of David. But God came down in person to set things right. You have your Bible in front of you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9. Paul quotes the words of verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 2 9. He says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then he's adding a few words of explanation and teaching to it. But this is an allusion or a quote from verse 4 of our chapter text. What is Paul doing? 1 Corinthians 2, 9. He's taking these words of verse 4, he's applying them to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the, the Lord Jesus Christ who came because God did marvelous and unexpected and unimaginable things for those who wait for him, for those who love him. How did he do it? What did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when he died, the earth shook. It trembled. It quaked. And three days later, it shook and trembled and quaked when he rose from the dead and when God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the answer to the cry and the prayer of our text. But it's just the beginning of the answer. The coming of the Lord Jesus in the flesh. The birth of our Savior at Christmas. This is the beginning of the answer. This is D-Day. This is the storming of the beaches in Normandy. This is the establishment of the beachhead. This is the mortal blow to the power of the enemy. This is the planting of the banner of the kingdom of God in this world. This is the toppling of the prince of darkness from power. The birth, suffering, and Death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes all that. And now, now we live in the time of mopping up. Now we live in the time of the imminent scouring of the shire. And as the days darken in this month of December, and as we wait for Christmas, around the darkest time of the year, The Spirit instructs us to lift up our eyes to heaven from which we await a Savior. Just like the prophet does in our text chapter. He looks back and sees what God has done in the past and that gives him hope for the present and for the future. So we too, as we look back at the initial answer of God to this prayer of our text, we look forward to the future. 
We look to heaven from which we await a Savior, the one whose voice shook the earth at Sinai and now has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The entire universe is about to be shaken. He comes. Emmanuel, God with us. He will shake the heavens and the earth and everything and everyone that is not in Christ will fall away. He comes to rescue his people. He comes to set things right. And once again, it will be a marvelous and an unexpected and an indescribably amazing salvation. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. That is what God is preparing for those who wait for him, who love him. He has come. He comes to wipe every tear from our eyes. He comes to put an end to injustice and oppression. He comes to put an end to disease and to death. He comes to disperse the gloomy clouds of night and put death's dark shadows to flight. He comes to forever shut the gates of hell that we eternally in paradise regained, may dwell. He comes. Christian, is that what you're waiting for? Is that your deepest longing? Is that the cry of your heart? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Amen.